Uh, my name is uh, Ian. I'm the Family Life Pastor here at Epicenter Church. Um, it's an honor to be with each of you this morning. Uh, Pastor Mark is finishing up the last leg of his vacation, and he will be back next week for our new series, Summer Sequels. If you have not voted yet, or if you feel like voting again, make sure you grab a card and stick it in the joy box on your way out, because we're going to kick that thing off next week, and it's going to be awesome. So definitely come back and check that out. But now that you know that I'm not Pastor Mark, I do want to take this quick opportunity to publicly thank him, even though he's not here, uh, for giving me the opportunity to stand here and, uh, and share the gospel with each of you this morning. It's not something that I take lightly. Uh, pastor Mark is not just my pastor and he's not just my boss. He is uh, my friend in many ways. He's my mentor and in many ways he's one of my heroes in life. So it is not uh, it's not something that I, that I stand up here and be like, oh, I'm going to come and preach to some people. Uh, it's, uh, I know what this means for him to, to trust me to stand here before you guys this morning. And it, it's, a, it's a really humbling, uh, humbling thing. And it's, it is not just humbling, though, for me to stand here on a, on a Sunday morning when I get to preach. It's also humbling every Sunday when I get to come up to the front and uh, whether I get to welcome all of you to church, uh, whether I get to kind of lead you into the opportunity to, to worship God by giving back to Him in your finances, whether I get to celebrate with you and closing out a service or, or my personal favorite, whether it's preaching to your students or to your kids. Everything that I do in this role is very humbling to me because uh, I, I don't always feel worthy of the position that God has, has placed me in. And that has a lot to do with the title of our message today. Uh, as you see from your uh, worship directories or from the screens, the title of the message today is Follow Me. Now, follow me is a pretty common phrase in church world, but I designed this title to be pronounced a very specific way, and I'm going to share that with you. It goes like this. <clears throat> follow me? You have to make the very scrunched up face and kind of high-pitched me kind of expression of confusion. So I need you guys to do that with me on the count of three. We're going to do it together. You ready? One, two, three. Me? Very good. Some of you need to work on a little, get your pitch a little bit higher, scrunch your face up a little bit more. But that's, okay, the, the purpose of the, the, series, of the, the message being called Follow Me is to kind of paint this picture of kind of questioning our own uh, validity uh, for our appointment or our assignment, kind of like, what are, are we up to the task at hand? Um, you know, because Ma or, I'm sorry, Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he commands us to make disciples. And there's many times, though, that we don't really feel worthy of being followed. At least if you're like me, you, you've probably felt that way. I know it's true for me, even though uh, filling any role in ministry, one of the main requirements is that you be able to lead people. There are days that I wake up and look in the mirror and I say, uh, God, are you sure you got the right one? Are you sure you want people following me? Because I don't know if I'm really all that worth following. And you know, that, that sense of, of questioning whether we're up to the task at hand, for me, it doesn't stop uh, just with my pastoral duties here at Epicenter. Um, I remember two and a half years ago when my son was born, I remember holding him the first night he was born. If you're, you're a parent, you've probably felt something like this. I'm just looking at him and just wondering inside myself how it was possible to love someone so small, so much, so fast, especially when they look a little bit like a space alien. Because let's be honest, we all thought our babies were real cute when they got born, and then like six months later, like, well, I thought that was cute, okay, whatever. All right, but... So then the next wave kind of hit me, and I'm like, I'm holding my son, and I'm thinking, wait a second. 
I'm in charge of raising this guy. Like, pretty soon, this space alien's going to be a human. And I'm going to have to teach him how to walk, how to talk, how to read, how to respect others, how to dream, how to work to achieve his, how to work to achieve his goals, how to follow Jesus, how to live. And then the, the third stage of this kind of epiphany is, oh, no. What if I screw up? What if I mess my kid up through my own incompetence? God, are you sure you want me to be this dude's dad? Because I'm probably not going to do a very good job. You know, and then for me, it wasn't just parenthood. I felt that way the day that I married my wife. I, I didn't ask her this question, but I went, are you sure you want to marry me? As soon as, as soon as she said I do, I was like, ha ha, now you're stuck. But, uh, you know, the first day that, um, you know, I went to my, my job as a teacher, I was like, I don't know if they want to put me in charge of kids. Uh, okay, whatever you say, people. Uh, but even my first promotion, uh, my first... Um, my first starting spot on the high school basketball team, I've always had kind of this question of me like, dude, are you sure? I mean, coach, are you sure you picked the right tall, skinny white dude that can't run fast or jump high? I don't know, man. Um, but so I'm not the most confident person in the world, but I, some of these experiences may be exclusive to me, but I'm pretty sure each of us have had a moment in our lives where we're not really 100% sure that we're up to whatever task is kind of staring us down. For some of you, it could be as simple as, uh, you know, being chosen as the line leader at elementary school or the captain of your JV football team. For some of us, it could be as complex and difficult as as being a single parent trying to raise multiple children or being, you know, in in charge of, of soldiers and leading them into battle and thinking somewhere in the back of our minds, hey, I don't think I'm cut out for this. I don't know that I'm up to the task at hand. And then when we take that feeling of, of, can I really do this? And we juxtapose that with the command of Jesus to go out and make disciples, the question of our own followability becomes even more frightening and something we have to look at even harder and more honestly. Because the very definition of making disciples means that people will follow our example and learn the value of having a relationship with Jesus through us. And if we profess to follow Jesus and if we claim the mantle of Christianity, then people will associate our actions, words, and attitudes with Jesus, whether we may want them to or not. And for some of us, that's a, our reaction to that is like, uh, no thank you. I know I'm messed up. I don't want nobody equating me with what it's like to follow Jesus. I'm trying to just figure this thing out myself. I don't want, I don't want that responsibility of, the, of making disciples. I don't want that responsibility of people looking at my life and associating that with Jesus. No, thank you. That's why I bring people to church so they can watch the people on the stage. Like, hey, hey, follow them. Don't follow me because I'm still trying to figure out where I'm going. But we don't have a choice because if we're around people and if we proclaim Christianity, they're going to take some of their cues about what it means to follow Jesus from us, whether we want them to or not. Uh, I have a little bit of research-based proof for you in case you don't believe me. Uh So there. Uh, Several years ago, the Barna Group did a study. The study was for a book called Unchristian, and they studied uh, a large number of people who were not believers, were not part, were not uh, Christian believers, and were not part of any uh, Christian church across lots of age groups, but the focus of the study was to kind of get a feel for how 18 to 29-year-olds felt about Christianity, just kind of get a feel for how adults of the newest generation of adults felt about Jesus. Well, 50% of people who responded to the survey said that their views on faith and Christianity were shaped in part or in whole by relationships that they had with professing Christians. 
So at least 50% of people had their view of what it means to follow Jesus shaped by the people who they knew who claimed to follow Jesus. Furthermore, 20% of all respondents, regardless of age, which is representative of over 50 million people in the United States, had a bad experience in a church or with a Christian that gave them a negative image of Jesus. It didn't give them a negative image of that church or of that Christian, but it gave them an overall negative image of Jesus Christ. So the way we live when we profess Christ has an impact on how people see not just us, but how they see, how they see Jesus. But there's a positive side to that as well. That same study from the Barna Group found that of all professing Christians from Generation X, 71% of them, 71% listed an individual person as being the most significant factor in their decision to follow Jesus. So 71% of these these people who have decided to follow Jesus said that the biggest reason they've done so is not because of a church or, or an event or a service, but because of a relationship that they had with an individual who professed Christ. It can, you know, that, that relationship led them to make the choice to follow Jesus as well. So, in light of those statistics, the call to make disciples and to live a life worth following can seem even more daunting than it did even just a few minutes ago, but there's hope for us. While many of us may not feel as though we're up to the task, I want to share with you some, a passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that I believe will lay the groundwork for us each to live a life that is worth following. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll be hanging out in verses 7 through 16 today. As you're turning there, I want to give you kind of a little bit of background as to who Timothy was and why this book was written. Timothy uh, was one of the Apostle Paul's closest associates. He spent 15 years traveling the world with the Apostle Paul, uh, doing, you know, fulfilling missionary duties and helping Paul spread the gospel. But at the time of this letter being written, Paul had appointed Timothy as the head of the church in Ephesus. This church was going through uh, some problems with false teaching and church discipline. And and Paul had chosen Timothy to be the one to kind of set things straight and lead them in a new direction. Many scholars, though, believe that Timothy was by nature a very shy and timid individual. Paul had to consistently uh, encourage Timothy to continue on in his calling and show um, you know, show people that he was, he was doing the right thing. And so to me, it's no stretch that Timothy had at least one or two days in his own life where he woke up and looked in a mirror and said, are you sure they, they're supposed to follow me? He had kind of some of these same feelings of uncertainty, the same kind of doubt as to whether he was up to the task at hand. And even though First uh, Timothy is a letter written by Paul to Timothy to explain pastoral duties, I believe that each of us can learn something about living a life worth following from what Paul has to say here. We're going to actually start in verse 16. And verse 16 says, Keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. So first and foremost, what this does is it confirms what the Barna Group study already shared with us is that the way we live can either positively or negatively impact others' perception of Jesus and of faith. Now, when Paul says stay true or stay true to what is right for the sake of your salvation and the salvation of those around you, he is not saying that any of us are responsible for anyone else's salvation. I can't choose for you whether you're going to follow Jesus any more than you can choose for me. However, the way that I live when I profess Christ can influence whether you believe 
following Jesus is worth your time and effort. So, our actions can persuade or dissuade people from following Jesus. And to, because they're going to, you know, many times people will kind of take their cues from us learning what it means to follow Christ. And a great example of this is parents and their children. Pastor Mark often says um, that whatever parents do in moderation, their children will do in excess. And I heard him say that multiple times. And I, I would sometimes sit back and be like, I'm not sure that's true because... I can't think of anything my dad did in moderation that I do in excess. And, you know, I was kind of like, eh, I don't know. Then I had a son. And uh, I realized how correct Pastor Mark has been all these years. Because when I, when I play with my son, um, we, we, we like to be noisy. You know, but it's not, a, it's not a all the time. I don't run through the house just talking really loud or anything like that. But when we play, we, we get a little rowdy and we get a little bit loud. And his mom has to come in and go, shh. And, and he, we, we, you know, he get, he's excitable. Well, so I only do that with him when, when we're playing. But my son, um, I love him. But if you, let's say you ask an average child, at least the ones that I've spent a lot of time with that are around my son's age, if you say, hey, hey, sing the ABCs, they're going to be, okay, A, B, C, D, and they'll, they'll carry on. Okay, well, you ask my son to sing the ABCs. He says, okay, A, B, C, D. He, shout, he, he seems like he's shouting at the top of his lungs, but it's just the way that he talks. If he's awake and talking, you're probably not going to be able to hear anything else. And my wife, every time, every time he's being loud and I'm trying to watch TV, I'm like, man, he is really loud. And my wife looks at me like this. Mm-hmm. You know whose fault that is, don't you? And I was yes. So I now kind of subscribe to this theory that whatever parents do in moderation, our children will do in excess. But put another way, kind of explain that a little bit differently. You could put it like this. Our kids won't just follow our example. They'll take our example to the extreme. Now, for some of us, that's really cool. They're like, yeah, I've got some things in my life that I wish I could do more of. I really hope my kid takes those things to the extreme. And for others of us, that's really terrifying. Because we're like, what? No, thank you. And so a, a kind of a good way to determine if your life is worth following is to ask yourself, it, kind of take a look at the way you're currently living and the kinds of choices you tend to make and ask yourself, would you want your kids, rather real or future, to take your current lifestyle to the extreme? If the answer is no, then you may need to make some changes in order to live a life worth following. See, I'm not trying to say that any of us need to be the perfect parent because that doesn't exist. But I am trying to paint this picture for you that the way we live as a professing Christian has an impact not only on how our kids see us, but also how they see Jesus and how they understand what it means to live for him. And that doesn't extend just to our kids. It, it extends to, to our relationships with friends, with coworkers, uh, with, with people around us. People, if they know that we believe in Jesus, they're gonna, and they don't, they're going to watch us in order to gain an understanding for what it means to serve Jesus. So whether we mean to or not, we're constantly teaching others what is and is not okay through the way that we speak, the things that we say, the things that we put on Facebook, the attitudes that we carry, the things that we give priority to. Okay, people are watching us comparing what we say we believe to how we really live, and all the while they're deciding through that filter whether or not we, and by extension Jesus, are even worth following. 
And that can be scary. That can seem like a heavy weight. Like, dude, I can't live up to those expectations. And, 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 and some of us, that's enough to just make us want to give up. But today, later on in this message, I'm going to share with you how you know, we have to just keep, keep doing our best to live a life that's worth following. And as we continue on, we'll, we'll learn more about exactly how to do that. However, the kind of lifestyle we live, the, the choices that we make, are not the only things that can cause us to ask, follow me, when God gives us the command to make disciples and to live a life that's worth following. Each of us has flaws, but many of us are so acutely aware of those flaws and of our shortcomings and the disadvantages that we face in life that we have convinced ourselves that those flaws and shortcomings and disadvantages effectively eliminate us from living a life worth following. We say, hey, I can't make disciples because of this. We'll insert excuse here. And I'm pretty sure that Timothy probably felt this way too because as the Bible tells us, he was not only timid, but also young. At the time that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, Timothy, scholars believe, was somewhere between the ages of 30 and 40 years old. Before we continue, I just want to tell you guys how excited I am that the Bible describes somebody between the ages of 30 and 40 years old as young. I, uh, amen, hallelujah. I just entered that age bracket a couple months ago, and I was not feeling very good about life. I got a haircut yesterday, and all kinds of gray hairs are falling on the black um, thing that they cover you with, but I was getting a little depressed, so reading this makes me feel a little bit excited because God describes us uh, in that age bracket as young, but in his position as the leader of the church of Ephesus, Timothy was charged with leading people who were 20, 30, even 50 years older than him. And Paul knew that Timothy's age was something of a double-edged sword. See, it wasn't only the easiest way for people to try to discredit his leadership and say, I don't have to follow you. You're young. You're inexperienced. You don't know what you're talking about. But it was also a handy excuse for Timothy to give up trying in the first place. That's why Paul addresses Timothy's age in verse 12, which we'll go to now. He says, don't let anyone think less of you because you are young. Be an example to all believers in what you say, in the way you live, in your love, in your faith, and your purity. Again, Paul is affirming the fact that our actions have an impact on others, but here he's focusing not on the possible I'm sorry, negative repercussions of poor choices, but instead on the immense opportunity that each of us has to be a positive influence in the lives of the people around us. As we begin to dive into this verse, I want to make two important kind of clarifications about it. First, when Paul says, do not let anyone think less of you, He's not suggesting that Timothy should exercise his authority and put the disrespectful person in his place, kind of like, hey man, you can't think less of me. Come on, I'm in charge here. That's not what Paul's talking about, even though that's what I thought the first couple times I read it. Instead, he's advising that Timothy live his life in a way that is so far above reproach and above criticism that anybody who attempts to discredit him on account of his age will be laughed out of the building. He's saying live to a standard that's so high above the norm that nobody can say anything negative about you and have it even possibly stick. Secondly, many versions translate this, the, the next part of verse 12 as be an example to all believers, but it's actually better translated and is translated in some versions, be an example of all believers. Basically, Paul is telling Timothy to be a living, breathing example of how a believer in and follower of Jesus should live. And in writing this, Paul is both discrediting Timothy's 
uh, potential accusers. And even more importantly, he's removing Timothy's greatest excuse for inaction. By saying, don't let anyone think less of you because you're young, Paul's basically telling Timothy to rise above the excuses and live a life worth following. Each of us would do well to follow that advice. See, each of us have these reasons and excuses that we could share or list as to why we're ineffective at making disciples, as to why we're not making a difference in our communities. But Paul here is saying that we should refuse to allow our perceived shortcomings to hold us back. In fact, I think he addresses Timothy's youth in this passage because it is the easiest excuse for Timothy to get out of taking risks and stepping out in faith. Some of us have different things that we could put in this verse. For you, it might read something like this. Don't let anyone think less of you because you're a single mother. Don't let anyone think less of you because of your rank. Don't let anyone think less of you because you're recovering from an addiction. Don't let anyone think less of you because you have been abused. Don't let anyone think less of you because you're a single. You're single. Don't let anyone think less of you because of your past or your pain or your problems. But instead, be an example of all believers. Paul is telling us here that whatever our excuses or reasons might be, we have a choice between sinking to the level of the expectations and accusations of others, thereby confirming their stereotypes and misconceptions, or we can choose to rise up to the purpose for which we were created and live out an example of what it really means to follow Jesus. Now, if we're talking about excuses for inaction, then I shouldn't be here. I could give you a long list of excuses that I've tried to feed God. God, I'm too young. No, you're not. I'm too shy. I don't care. I'm too northern and they'll think I'm rude. Oh, well. You are rude. Get better. And I tried to feed him all of these different reasons why I couldn't do the things that he was calling me to do. But really, every single reason, every single excuse boiled down to one thing, fear. And if I was being honest, all I would have ever been able to say to him is, God, I'm too scared to do what you're asking me to do. Because if you use me in that way, my life is going to change. More people are going to be watching me. They're going to be following me. Example, my example, I'm going to be held to an even higher standard. I don't want to do that. That's uncomfortable for me. But Paul here is saying, don't let your excuses, don't let people think less of you because of your excuses. He's saying, hey, listen, you can cite your, your age or your race or your status or your past as reasons why your lives aren't worth following, or you can stand up grow up and say, I refuse to be defined by my circumstances and rather I'm going to live out my life in a way that is worth following. Thankfully, Paul does not stop at telling Timothy what to do, but he continues on and explains how to do it. He says, be an example to all believers in what you say, in the way you live, in your love, your faith, and your purity. Briefly, I want to kind of just give some very quick examples of how each of these things could impact people. In what you say, do we speak in a positive manner? 
do, do, do we approach life and, 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 and the conversations that we have knowing that, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Or is negativity our default setting? And if it is, think about this. If our, if, we're, if our default setting in life is negativity, then what impression does that give people of what it means to follow Jesus? I'm not saying that we should be happy all the time. Like, hey, guys, it's a great day, even when, even when stuff's not going right. Because if you know somebody who's happy all the time, chances are you've wanted to punch them in the face more than once. All right, I'm not saying we need to kind of be fake and put out this everything is awesome all the time kind of attitude, but let's, you know, let's try to find the positive in life and in our situation and, and speak to the fact that God's in control no matter what's going on in how you live. Basically, this just means how we carry ourselves, how we interact with others, our body language, our, our friendliness, essentially our, our entire character. Does our character speak to the life change that God is doing inside of us? In your love, how well do we show love to others? Are we serving and loving the people around us in the same way that Jesus served and loved us? In your faith, how big of a part of your life is your faith? Is it something that you practice daily or is it something that we just pick up on Sundays and every once in a while on Wednesdays? Would people know that we believed in Jesus if we didn't tell them? Would they understand that there's something different about us in the way we approach the difficult situations in life? Or is our faith kind of silent inactive and therefore, according to James, dead. In your purity, are our motives pure? Are our thoughts pure? Are our actions pure? Do we do everything we can to live a life that is holy and blameless, understanding that we will sometimes make mistakes and that God will be there with his grace and mercy to forgive us? And so Paul has explained now how to rise above the expectations and eliminate excuses. And so he goes on to share the process that each of us will need to undertake in order to do so. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. It says, Do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better. Promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. Here Paul paints a perfect picture. Say that four times fast. <clears throat> Paul paints a perfect picture here of what it takes to fully commit to living a life worth following. And what it takes is training. We have to train ourselves for godliness, practicing living a life worth following every single day. And just like physical exercise, we can't just stop when we reach a certain level of achievement. We have to keep going every day. As soon as we stop training, as soon as we stop practicing godliness, we begin to go backwards. I, uh, I love basketball. Uh, I love watching basketball, playing basketball. I didn't say I was good at it. I just said I love it. Um, but I follow the NBA pretty closely. And if you follow the NBA even a little bit, you've probably heard of a guy named Ray Allen. And Ray Allen is widely known as one of, if not the greatest shooters in the history of professional basketball. Even though he's, he's respected and regarded in that way, every single game since the second year of his career, every single game he played, he would go to the arena three hours before the game and just practice shooting. Usually only for about 20 or 25 minutes. 
about 1,400 games, he would go to the arena three hours before any of the other players on either team or, and, and just start shooting, just start practicing. He was almost always the only player in the arena. Sometimes he'd have to travel to the arena in a cab or, or on the team bus if it was an away game. But even though he was the only player in the arena, he was very rarely the only person on the court. He, he shared a story of how he would have to compete for court space with cheerleaders or mascots or halftime entertainment. And people would look at him like, dude, why do you keep doing this? You're the greatest shooter of all time. Why do you keep practicing? It didn't make sense to a lot of people. And it really would have been easy for Ray Allen to say, okay, I'm good enough now. Oh, I'm really good at shooting. I guess I can stop practicing. But he didn't because he understood that the moment we stop training is the moment we start failing. See, no matter how followable our lives might feel today, we have to continue to train for godliness on a daily basis. We have to wake up daily and say to ourselves, today I'm going to do the best I can to live, up for the purpose, to live up to the purpose and the plan that God created me for. I'm going to do everything I can to live a life worth following. And here's the other side of this, kind of this coin with Ray Allen and with us when it comes to training. As great as he was and as much as he practiced, Ray Allen never made more than 49% of his shots in a season. That means even at his very peak, one of the greatest shooters of all time, the very best he ever was, still missed more shots than he made. His career percentage was only 45%. And for the greatest shooter who ever lived, that doesn't seem that great. But Ray Allen understood something that I think you and I need to understand. Just like Ray Allen was pretty sure he'd never make 100% of his shots in a season or even in a game, I'm pretty sure you and I will never live a life that's perfect. But if we allow that to convince us to stop trying, what, good are, what, 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 what will our life amount to if we say, well, I'll never achieve perfection, so I'm going to give up right here? Ray Allen kept shooting. He kept training because he knew hey, today I'm going to do the best I can today. It might be 30%, it might be 70%, it probably won't be 100%, but that's okay. And so in the same way, we cannot stop caring about the example that we're setting just because we know we're never going to be perfect. We also, it's, it's kind of this, this never arrive philosophy. We, we have to acknowledge that we're never going to arrive at a place where we're good enough to quit training. And we also have to understand that we'll also never arrive at a level of perfection to, to where our, our efforts will seem fully worth it. But we have to understand that in the middle between where we are and where we're trying to get, where we're trying to be, there's grace. And Paul addresses the struggle that we face daily in verse 10 when he says this. This is why we work hard and continue to struggle. For our hope is in the living God who is the Savior of all people and particularly all believers. See, Paul's not pulling any punches here. He acknowledges that training for godliness is a constant and consistent struggle. It's not easy to be an example. It's not easy to live a life worth following. If it was, then everybody would do it. Paul's saying, hey, hey, yeah, 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 we struggle. 
to do this. It's hard. It's grueling sometimes to keep training ourselves for godliness. But this is why we do it. Because our hope is in the living God who is the Savior of all people. He said living a life is worth the constant struggle because our hope is in Him. There's one small part of living a life worth following that I haven't exactly fully explained to you yet, and that's this. It is impossible. So before you're like, dude, what is wrong with you? You just spent 30 minutes talking about how we need to do something that's impossible. You need to get your head checked. Hear me out. What I mean is that if you and I are going to do everything that we can to live a life so rich and full and accomplished that we can turn to the people behind us and say, hey man, look at me. I'm worth following. I, I, I mean, look at all the stuff that I've done, all of the things that I've accomplished. You need, to, you need to get behind me so I can teach you a thing or two. If, if our purpose in living a life worth following is just to have followers of our own, then we will always fail. We cannot live a life worth following through our own strength. We can't rely on our own strengths and abilities to get us to the place we've been created and called to go. But that's where I want to address the question mark in the title of our message. I told you at the beginning that the question mark was there. It was designed to, you know, kind of paint a picture of the the questions we all ask ourselves when we're called to make a difference in the world, when we're called to make disciples, when we're called to live a life worth following, we always ask ourselves, hey, can I really do this? Am I up to this task? Do you really want people to follow me? But now instead of using that question mark to explain self-doubt or uncertainty, I want us to look at it a different way, as an invitation. See, a couple thousand years ago, there's this man, we call him Jesus, and he was walking along the shoreline. And he saw these two fishermen, grungy, uneducated, unqualified dudes. And he said, hey, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He didn't say, hey, follow me, because you've got your life together, and I really think I can use you to influence people. He didn't say, hey, follow me because you've got a set of skills that I can use to accomplish the, the, the purpose that I've come to earth for. He didn't say, hey, follow me because, you know, your life's all put together and you're going to be a shining example of what it means to live for, live for me. You're going to be a life worth following because of what you've already got figured out. He said, hey, 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 follow me and I will make you into fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you into somebody worth following. Follow me and I will make you an example of what it's like to live for me. Our end game cannot be to live a life worth following just to say we did it. It has to be our purpose and our, our, our goal in living that kind of life in being, able to, in, in being able to be an example and live a life that others want to emulate. It can't stop with us. It has to be designed and directed towards Him. 
We can't just go through life collecting people who want to be like us, our little mini-me's, and say, hey, I'm their hero. We have to say, no, no, no. There's only one hero, and it sure ain't me. See, when we live a life that's truly worth following, then when people ask us how we do it, we can say, Jesus. When they ask us how we're always so positive in, the, in our outlook, we can say, Jesus. When they ask us, how do we love and serve others so selflessly, we can say, Jesus. When they ask us, how do you have such great faith, we can say, Jesus. When they ask us, how, how do you decide each day that it's worth it to practice godliness, we can say, Jesus. When they ask us, how, how have you recovered from addiction, we can say, Jesus. How have you overcome the grief of losing a loved one? Jesus, how were you lost and broken and useless, but now you're a child of God, Jesus? The only life worth following is the life that points directly back to Him. And we don't have to do that on our own. When Jesus called us, He said, hey, hey, follow me, and I will make you worth following. I will make you into somebody who represents me.